All I can say is, wow, that is beautiful. Such a wonderful privilege to be here today for that. And uh, thank you, David. Thank, thank you for all the children who sang and sang so clearly. Goodness. It's hard for me to uh, preach after that. I think that's good enough. We can just all go home. Amen. Thank you so much for that. What a blessing to be able to be here today for that. Well, today's a good day to be with you, and thank you so much for coming. And in case you don't know who I am, I'm pastor at Covenant Baptist Church, and this is where Mark Corral has hooked up with us a little while back, in fact, a few years back, to try to uh, pursue elder ordination, pastor ordination. And uh, he's coming to the close of that very soon. And uh, when that happens, you won't see a whole lot of me, which is perfectly fine. I'm uh, looking forward to him taking the reins completely here at this church. And I'm so thankful also for David and Miss Pat, who've been coming up here for many, many months now, years now, helping us with the music. And it's been a blessing to be able to be a part of this. So keep praying for Mark and Allie as they get to the final end of this part of ordination. It's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. And uh, with all that he's had going on also with his work and even the church and now a growing church. I was thinking just a moment ago with the children singing here that, uh, man, there's so much happening right here at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon in Rock Hill. And people in Rock Hill and Charlotte, Lancaster, and all these areas around here need to know about this. So that's going to be up to you. Make sure you get the word out so they'll come and be a part of this great church that God's growing here in Rock Hill. Well, what I'd like you to do today is open up with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, as we look together at God's Word, and I'm going to be considering the topic of how the church can become the enemy of God, how the church can become the enemy of God. We are going through James in our church on Sunday morning, uh, verse by verse. We've come to this section now in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. I won't get far because it'll take me a number of Sundays to do so, but I want to go as far as I can today with you as we look together at James chapter 4. So consider it with me as I read verses 1 through 6. The Word of God says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you, you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures, adulterers, adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Probably one of the most amazing statements found in all of the word of God is that you can become a friend of God. In fact, Abraham, it even recounts for us in James 2.23 when James tells us that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then it says this, and he was called the friend of God. Also, even our Lord himself talked of his disciples. In John 15, 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus said of his disciples, You are my friends. 
That's an astonishing statement. That you can become a friend of God. This is the God of creation. This is the sovereign one of the universe. This is the creator of all things. This is the holy God of Isaiah 6. This is the God of Mount Sinai where it thundered and lightened and earthquakes occurred and the people were afraid and filled with terror. This is the God of Revelation that returns in judgment and wrath and pours out horrible wrath on this earth in judgment of those who have rejected Christ. This is the God who created hell that in fact has placed not only the devil and his angels there eventually, but will place millions of people there for all eternity who have rejected Jesus Christ. This is the God that the Bible says can be your friend. Or better yet, you can be the friend of God. That's an amazing statement. But there's nothing more troubling and potentially disastrous than to be called the enemy of God. Being an enemy of God as a lost person puts you on the road to utter destruction and absolute ruin. In fact, it propels you toward a godless and Christless eternity that is full of the fury of God's wrath, not just for a moment, not just for hours, but for all eternity. It is an eternity where there's no chance of relief, no time of rest, but a time of complete and full fury of the justice of God. It is relentless, unending. It is a darkness that is never dispelled. It is a pain that is never diminished and a tribulation that is never lifted. Nothing can be so horrifying than to have yourself end up in the unending torture of God and dying as an enemy of God. But what is just as shocking and even more sobering is that the church can also place itself in a position to be considered an enemy of God. All the bride of Christ need to do is to become a friend of the world. If you become a friend of the world, the Bible says you have become the enemy of God. In fact, another way of saying that is, is that the bride of Christ literally goes after another lover. Instead of loving Christ with all of its heart, mind and strength it pursues others it pursues other affections it pursues the world system it's like finding the devil in all of his disguises and finding him more attractive than christ there's nothing so destructive to a marriage than to bring in another lover and there's nothing more destructive to the church than for the bride of christ to run after another man in the churches of revelation in chapter two through three we have seven churches that are listed there only two are found faithful five of them receive stern rebukes from jesus christ in fact on one occasion it says that jesus christ will come and fight against them strong words we are currently living in a time of unprecedented unfaithfulness on the part of the church. She, that is the church, is head over heels in love with the world. Her desire more and more is to look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, and think like the world. Much like a married couple that spends years together, they begin to think alike, talk alike. Sometimes they can finish each other's sentences. 
And now the church has been so infatuated with the world and has spent so much time in the world that it talks like the world. It mimics the world instead of Christ. It is a mirror reflection in many cases of the world. One author said this, the spirit of worldliness has always been a problem for the church. But today, especially so. Especially so. The church has become a better representation of the world than it is of Christ who saved her. There are so many examples of this affection that I could spend hours going through a list of those things. And all you have to do is read the basic headlines today. And you'll find out that in the last 10 years especially, the church's affection for the world has grown exponentially. Sadly, we see it in churches all the time now where the churches look more like the world rather than Christ. Ministries have come up and have grown over the last few years and few decades that were fighting for the faith and defending the church against false doctrine, but even more specifically now to defend the church against this worldliness. These ministries have grown exponentially. In the last few years, I was able to talk with Justin Peters and I was talking to him about how many false teachers he has to deal with today that have come in and crept into the churches through different means, whether it's media or even coming to churches and speaking in churches. And I told him, you know, you're not going to ever lack for material anymore because there's so much out there now that you have to deal with. And it has to do with the way the world is not only infatuated with and in love with the world, but the world has been invited into the church, opening the doors. Now, the key to understand the text that I just read to you is found in verse 4. And if you'll look at it with me, I'll read it again. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are words there that we need to understand. The words friendship, the word friend, the word enmity, and the word, the word enemy. And to understand these words will help us to understand just how severe it is, the point that James is making. Of all the statements found in all of the book of James, I think this is probably the strongest. Even more than what he said in chapter 3, that the tongue can be set on fire from hell, I believe these words that James gives to the church that he's writing to are strong. They are a rebuke for a church that was infatuated with the world, that was finding the world more attractive than the Christ that saved her. So what does the word friend or friendship mean? Well, first, the word friendship. The Greek word philia is a word that is often associated with the Greek verb phileo. You probably have heard that word before. Phileo means love. It has the idea of a friendship or a fondness of someone. It's different than agape in the sense that agape is a willful love, a decisive love, a determined love. Phileo is a love that is more emotional, it's more affectionate, it's more a result of the agape love. But it's used often in the New Testament. In fact, this word group, we get the word kiss from it. But the word philos is another word in this text, not only friendship, but the word friend, the word philos basically has the idea of someone having a special interest in someone else. 
Or another way of saying that, of having a specific affection for someone else. Now, we know what that is. I don't have to explain to you what friendship is. Like I told our church this morning, it's not a Facebook friend I'm talking about. We're talking about a real friend. Someone that you desire to be around, that you are indeed affectionate for, that you enjoy the company of, that kind of friend, that kind of person. It may be your wife or your husband, or it may be a friend that you have at church or a friend at work. Someone that you desire to be with, you enjoy spending time with, you have an affectionate love for. That's the word here, phileo, the word for friend and the word for friendship. It is used also in John chapter 5, verse 20, of the father's love of the son. That the father phileos the son, has an affection for the son. Desires to be with the son. It's also used in John eleven three of the father's and the son's love for those who have saving faith. So God uses it not only for himself and for his son, but also for us as believers. It's not to diminish the word agape, even though that's a tremendous word that speaks of the sacrificial love of God for all of us. But this love gets a lot closer to us. It's a lot more affectionate toward us. It's a lot more endearing toward us. It's more emotional. So when he says that you're a friend or you have friendship with the world, he simply means that you have a friendship in the sense that you have an affection for, a love for, a desire for, or desire to be with the world. Now, what does the world mean? The word to cosmu means basically that you are considering the object of the world as your desire and your affection. He's not talking about the cosmos in the sense of the creation. He's not talking about the physical creation of the plants and the trees and the water and the fish and the animals and the birds and so forth. He's not talking about the universe cosmos, the the planets and the stars. Here he's using it in the same sense that most of the New Testament uses it, in the sense of the world system. The evil system, the system that is governed by the devil, the one that is opposite of God, opposite of his word, opposite of truth, one that is filled with lies and filled with, as the earlier text says in James 3, worldly wisdom that is earthly and sensual and demonic, that kind of world system. It's hostile. It's at enmity with God. It's The opposite of God. It works against God. As one author said, this world system means the flood of thoughts, feelings, and principles of actions, conventional prejudices, dislikes, attachments, which have been gathering around human life for ages, impregnating it, impelling it, molding it, and degrading it. Another author said about this world system, its chief aim and central aim is the self-enjoyment self-aggrandizement in disregard of or openly hostile to God. To cultivate the world friendship implies conformity to its principles and its aims. To be controlled by the spirit of worldliness is wholly incompatible with loyalty to God. Another author said that this worldly system is man-centered, Satan-directed. It's the present age that is hostile to God and God's people. It refers to a self-centered, godless value system and mores of fallen mankind. The goal of this world self-glory, self-fulfillment, and self-indulgent, and self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving, all of which amounts to hostility towards God. 
Now, if you've ever wondered what that looks like, just look around you. Listen to a little bit of the news. Watch a few things going on in our culture. And you're going to see a culture, a people that are working actively hostile to God. And these same hostilities come in the form of thoughts. They're framed in philosophy. They're framed in education. And they come at you in great amounts. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, John says this, that this whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Or it lies under the sway of the devil himself. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, it says that Christ came and died for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. In other words, we live in the context of a time where this world system works actively hostile to God. It does everything it can to lead men and women away from the things of God. And if you're not aware of this, then you should read what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul tells us that we are at war with the devil and his demons, and they are at work in principalities and powers and high places, and they are the ones, according to the book of Daniel, that literally govern the governorships of the world. They are the ones that are putting in place the thoughts and the ideas and the principles and the lies that are contrary to God. They are the ones that are behind the attempted destruction of the family. They are the ones that are constantly assaulting now the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and anyone who stands for absolute truth in God's word. This is that world system that we live in. But notice also the other words in the text. He uses the word enmity with God and the enemy of God. The word enmity, ekthra, is the Greek word. It means basically hatred or hostile. And when you're at hostility with God, that means you are against him. You're working against him. And even to add the flavor of the word, that you hate him. You hate God. I often hear people say, but I know so many people who love God. Well, they love the God of their own imaginations. Whenever you introduce them to the God of the Bible, oftentimes there's a whole other reaction. Arthur Pink, who wrote the classic book, The Sovereignty of God, dealt with that whenever he wrote that book, dealing with that great stupendous doctrine of the sovereignty of God that set at odds with many, with many people what they believe God to be. If you think you know who God is, I would encourage you to read the work of Arthur Pink on the sovereignty of God. Then you'll find out what the Bible says about this God of the Bible. So many had heard that book and read that book and they react, reacted to Arthur Pink with hostility and hatred. He ended up dying alone and depressed from such reaction to his writings. And all he was trying to do is show us the tremendous truth of the great sovereignty of the God to whom we have to do. But whenever we talk about the God of the Bible, we're talking about the one that you and I know, the one that is the sovereign of the universe, the creator of all things. And the Bible tells us that whenever you become a a person who is an affectionate person toward the world system, that you become an enemy of God, hostile to God, 
opposite of God, not yielding to the spirit, but yielding to the flesh, desirous of the things of the devil rather than the things of God. This word enmity here is used in Luke chapter 23, verse 12, which even talks about Pilate and Herod, that previously they, they were at enmity with each other. And that did not mean that they didn't uh, like each other in the sense of just being buddies. They hated each other. They despised each other. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says this, because the carnal mind, which refers to the fleshly lost mind, is enmity against God. What he is saying, Paul, is, is that the lost person, his heart and his mind, acts consistently hostile to God. It is a natural thing to expect a lost person to rebel against God. It should not be a shock. In fact, what we see today, because we've literally lived under the umbrella of a Judeo-Christian value system for so long, and now we're finding it shocking whenever we see what happens whenever that umbrella is taken away and the foundation of the Word of God is removed, and we end up seeing what happens to a culture whenever they abandon God. And what you need to know is that what you're seeing today is exactly what the Bible says that a lost person without God will do. Galatians 5.19 talks about the works of the flesh or the product of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, and then the word hatred. That's the word enmity. Then he uses the word enemy. So you have enmity, which is the actual act of hostility toward God, and then you also have enemy or the enemy of God. Now this is important to note here. He's not talking about so much that God is your enemy, although that's true as a lost person. But whenever you respond to God in the wrong way and you as a believer become a friend of the world, God becomes your enemy. In other words, it's shocking to think of it like this, but the church literally can put itself in a position where God becomes its enemy. So often I think we think that's not possible because I remember what it says in Romans 5 that we once were enemies, but we've been reconciled by the death of Christ. So how can we be an enemy of God? And again, in James, he's not saying this positionally. He's saying it practically speaking. If you become a friend of the world and you go after another lover as the bride of Christ, you can bank on it. God's coming at you as an enemy. And that's what I believe, by the way, has caused so much trouble today in a powerless church. The church is powerless. Listen, there are thousands of churches today in America. Thousands of them. And there are thousands of people who gather together on a Lord's Day. But with all the thousands of people, we don't have near the impact that the few disciples had in the book of Acts where they turned the world upside down for Christ. What's the problem? You say, well, we've got more numbers. Pragmatism would say you've got more numbers. You should have more effect. Well, what we have is a whole lot of numbers, but no power. And the reason why is because we've capitulated. We've given in. We've given into the world. We've sucked the world into the church, and we've grown affectionate toward the world. And we look like the world, and the world's not offended at us. And that's a sad reality, but the church will never have any power and will never have any effect on a culture whenever its enemy is God himself. 
It won't. In fact, in Romans 8 again, I read a few verses there. In verse uh, 6 through 9, it says, For the mind, the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is in the spirit of life is set on life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not, listen to this, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. In other words, the lost heart is not able to subject itself to the law of God, therefore it remains hostile to God. And a believer who decides to go after the world and desire the world puts itself in the position of what God thinks of an enemy that is even a lost person. It's a tragic reality that the Bible discusses here. Now, as I said, I don't believe that James is talking about the church positionally as an enemy, that we are not reconciled. We are reconciled to God. But as we pursue the world and we become a friend of the world, we make ourselves an enemy. That's what the text says. Look back at it again in verse 4. He says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you see the, ter- the two terms want and the term makes? The word wants here is the Greek word bulamai. It's a word that is often translated will or wish. It's more than just a wish. It's more of a determined decision. There is the difference of that word between the other word that is often translated wish. Here it actually denotes the idea of a determined will to do so. In other words... This is referring to the believer who therefore makes a decision to be a friend of the world. And there have been times in the last few decades that church leaders and believers have consciously made a decision to be a friend of the world. They believe that's how you reach them. You got to be a friend of them. And then also in this text, he says, if they determine, they make a decision to do this, to become a friend of the world affectionate of the world system it says that makes himself an enemy of god the word makes sometimes translated becomes in some translation kathistomy is the greek word it basically means to set down or to set in place you basically determine and you set yourself in place to be a receptor of being god's enemy it's a tragic thing to think about. This is a present tense verb also. It's a middle voice. means that it's an ongoing problem that James was addressing. And it's middle voice meaning that they were the ones doing it. They were the ones setting themselves up to do this. They had made a conscious decision to become a friend of the world. Thereby putting themselves in a position to be the enemy of God. One author said this. God will not tolerate any rival. And when a believer behaves in such a way that is characteristic of the world, he demonstrates that at that point his allegiance is to the world rather than God. And the only natural result should be that that believer should repent of that position. Friendship with the world and friendship with God are mutually exclusive. You can't be both at the same time. You can't. It's like light and darkness. It doesn't happen together. You either are a friend of the world or you're not a friend of the world. You either are a friend of God or you're not a friend of the God of God. It's like being filled with the Holy Spirit. Either you are filled with the Holy Spirit or you're not. It isn't half 50-50. I've got 50 of the Spirit and 50 of the flesh. 
Either you're controlled 100% by the Spirit of God at any given moment, or you're controlled by the flesh at any given moment. There is no middle ground. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about the problem that the church faces. And this is a great temptation in the church. Because we often think pragmatically, and we're all guilty of that, even though, how, even though many of us are very committed to the sovereignty of God and God's work in ministry, sometimes we just find ourselves looking pragmatically at ministry and pragmatically at the saving of the lost, pragmatically at anything the Bible says. But we have to understand that we have to be careful not to become a friend of the world and to adopt the world's philosophies to accomplish the ministry that God's called us to do. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now there, often that verse is used in marriage counseling to tell you not to be married to an unbeliever. And that's true. But that's not the primary point. The primary point of the text is, don't yoke up with, don't partner with unbelievers in any ministry endeavor. Or we could even add this, don't hook up with and we don't partner with the world and its system to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. We don't need it at all. One of the most difficult battles we faced in the abortion ministry has been the churches, the evangelical churches joining hands with the Roman Catholic Church. And what's behind that is pragmatism, folks. That's the only thing that's behind that is pragmatism because it looks like more numbers. We got more numbers, therefore we fight better. Know what you have done is remove the power. God will not share his glory with anybody. And he's definitely not going to share it with the Roman Catholic Church. Whenever he says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then Paul says, therefore, therefore, come out from among them and be separate. In other words, we don't need the world to do our ministry. We don't need the ungodly to do the ministry. We don't need the world philosophy to do the ministry. We don't need false religions to do the ministry. And the point is, is that Paul is driving home in that text is you cannot be a friend of the world. You can't. If you do, you put yourself at odds with God. You literally remove the potential power that God could use in your life whenever you do that. So many believers are compromised in this area. And sadly, most of us don't even know we are. Through the years, there has been a tremendous increase in the context of the Christian church of the influence of secular ideas whether it's secular psychology, secular psychiatry, whether it's uh, secular uh, means of church growth, or there's a hundred, hundred other things we could come up with that are illustrative of that very thing, where we brought all of this into the church, and what we've basically said is, listen, we really appreciate all that the church has. It has a nice building. It has a nice group of people. They love each other. They've got a good book, but it's just not sufficient. 
We need something else from the devil. And we need something else from the world and the philosophy of the world. And yet the Bible tells us, therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch the unclean and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This infatuation and love for the world should be uncharacteristic of a Christian. It should be. Sadly, it's not always the case. In fact, based on scripture, because of what I've seen in the last few years, the lines have been blurred in many, many ways as far as what a true Christian is and what a non-Christian is. We are rapidly disintegrating those things that we know are absolutes regarding what it means to be a believer. Nowadays, you can be involved in all kinds of lifestyles and you can have ongoing attractions and they're not called sinful. They're not called sinful. One of the biggest debates right now that's kind of ravaging through the churches is, is the same-sex attraction. There are some are saying that's not a sin to be attracted to the same sex. I ask you a question. I'll just go a little further with that. Is it a sin to be attracted to a child? Have any problem with that? All of a sudden we start drawing lines, don't we? We start drawing lines and no, 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 that's not possible. You can't have that kind of evil attraction and it not be a sin. Yet we eliminate it, the other one. Why? Because we are slowly the frog in the kettle and we're being warmed up to a culture that doesn't think biblically. It's going to be a tough turn. You know, one of the things I learned early on in ministry, and I was told this by some wise pastors before I went into ministry, when I would go into a Southern Baptist church that wasn't biblical in many ways, and I was told you need to slowly teach that church what the Word of God says. You've got to turn that ship slowly. And that's what you need to do in that case. I mean, if you come in and say, all right, we're going to set up church discipline, elder government, blah, 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 blah. We're going to go down the list. Well, what's going to happen in a matter of a few months? You're going to be kicked out as the pastor. They're going to continue on doing what they're doing. You're the bull in the china closet. Nothing's going to happen except some guy came in with some nutty ideas that no one believes because they would say that's not even in the Bible. Well, what you have to do is you have to slowly teach the people the word of God so that they see it in the Bible themselves. Therefore, they're willing to turn it. You don't have to turn that massive ship yourself. It'll turn on its own. Nowadays, what we've got is the whole evangelical community that is saturated with worldly thinking and worldly philosophy and worldly wisdom. And it's going to take a lot of time for churches like this church and churches like ours that are going to slowly, slowly turn this ship back where it needs to be. And we have drifted so far away from the centrality of the word of God, the sufficiency of the Bible and the wisdom of God. I sit in my office on a number of occasions counseling people, and I'm shocked at what I have to deal with. I have to spend hours undoing what they've learned over the years so that we can start going the right direction. I was told by one couple whenever we were talking about a child that was having some problems with discipline, and, and they said, well, their psychiatrist told them that if you hit the child, you're going to teach them to hit. I said, well, if you don't spank the child, he's going to hit. He's going to hit. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. A whole lot worse. 
These things are coming in so rapidly, it's very difficult for the average pastor in a local assembly to deal with it because the people who sit in the pews are listening to this stuff all week long. And then they come in and listen to one guy stand up and expound a text for one hour and think that's enough. And that'll be enough. Now, I know that all of us here, we would all agree, and we're humble enough to admit this, that we all fall. We all stumble with the world. There's times whenever we're attracted to the things of the world, and we seem to sometimes even think, you know, that sounds like a better answer or a better solution to my problems. But really, sadly, in many cases, so many in the church have lost discernment. Discernment is at an all-time low. You know what discernment is, right? It's not the ability to determine between right and wrong. It's the ability to determine between right and almost wrong. So in many cases, the church looks like the world. And some of it's unintentional. Some of it is. But by far, most of it is intentional. We believe the world system has better answers, better ways of accomplishing our goals and solving our problems. And so we go to the world. So the bride of Christ that should be madly in love with Christ is running after another man. But this should not be the case. We are called by God to be the salt and the light, not the sugar and the darkness. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says that we have not received the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit of God, which those are polar opposites. Romans 8, 1 says that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. We should not be characterized as those who walk according to the principles of the flesh and the world. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. There should be a difference between you and the world. 1 John 2, 12 or 2.15 says, Do not love the world. Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That imperative in that text can be translated one of two ways, and either one could be accurate. One is, do not love the world, and the other is, stop loving the world. I believe what is happening here is not necessarily a prohibitive stopping something from happening, but a corrective stopping something that was going on. And the church, as is often the case, ends up falling into this rut where it finds itself affectionate toward the world and love with it. So John says, stop loving it. Why should you stop loving it? Because that is not of the Father. You're literally loving something that's going to be destroyed. That's what you're loving. It will one day pass away. 1 John 4 When he talks about the Antichrist, he says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, that is the Antichrist, the ones who are opposed to Christ, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak speak as the world, and the world hears them. But we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Do you see the clear difference there? 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. In other words, we are overcomers of this world and world system through Christ. 
Jesus said it like this in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. By the way, if you think that what we've seen this past week, which was tragic in the Presbyterian church, is the only event that's going to happen, mark my words and many others who have said this, this is going to escalate. When you have a godless culture that rejects the things of God, and then you have someone standing up and saying, that's wrong, that's a sin, repent, this is right, this is absolute, the sinful part of the human heart will rebel and hate that with every fiber of their being and will do everything they can to extinguish it. That's the reason why they killed Jesus. That's the reason why they killed him. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips' translation says, Stop letting the world squeeze you into its image. And that's the key, isn't it? That's what should be expected of all of us. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. I mean, believers literally should be dead to the things of the world. Now, I'm not saying you go out and live in a hut somewhere and you don't get a job and take care of your family. We're not talking about those things. Remember what I defined the word world as. You are dead to the system of the world that is hostile to God. You don't receive it, you don't act on it, you don't think like it. Even Paul the Apostle said that I am crucified with Christ, but I've also been crucified to the world. Crucified to the world. The Bible says that the gospel is to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Christians, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, are to live the rest of their time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. He goes on and says, because you've already spent enough time in the world system. You've spent enough time wasting your time in the world system. So we all know that we have to live in the world, right? We can't get out of here until the Lord comes and gets us, Right? We have to live in the world, but the world doesn't have to live in you. There's a phrase that was often used, even years ago. We are not to be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. You've heard that, right? Well, there's a flip side to that that we need to remind ourselves of. And that is this. That we are not to be so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good either. Yes, we need to be conscious of the people around us. We need to be conscious of our surroundings. We need to train up our children to live in this present evil age. We need to be able to be faithful to the things of God. Yes, 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 we need to do that. But we don't need to be so far up in the clouds that we're no good for God here. God desires to use us. We are his instruments. We are the pots that he's chosen to use, even though as Paul puts it in his text in 2 Corinthians, we're crackpots. But nevertheless, we're here. We're usable, right? This is what James is bringing up here. It's a very serious concern. Apparently, the church was adopting some of the human thinking. Humanistic thinking would be better. Worldly tactics and thinking that the world would have. And they were beginning to practice the wisdom of the world. If you remember, there's a context here. In chapter 3, he talks about the wisdom of the world and the wisdom from above. In our Bibles, there's a chapter division between 3 and 4. But in James's writing, originally, there was no chapter divisions. So even in the Greek text, there's no connected particle, meaning that he's not starting a new section. 
He's continuing his thought. You have the wisdom of the world, which is earthly, is bound by this place, this time, this framework. It's sensual, meaning it's all based upon the appetites, desires, and affections of the sinful human being. It is demonic, which means it originates from the demons themselves and also is demonically flavored. But then he went on to say, but there's another wisdom that is the right wisdom. It is the wisdom from above. It's the wisdom that comes from God, which we've noted comes from the word of God given to us, empowered by the spirit of God to be lived. It's totally different than the world as opposed to it being conflicts and wars and battles. It's peaceable, gentle. He goes on and gives a whole list of words there in that text about what kind of wisdom comes from above. It's willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Totally the opposite of what the world teaches you should do. So that's the reason why you find the words given in chapter 4, verse 1, kind of like out of the blue. Like, why does he say, where do wars and fights come from among you? I've heard so many talk about that text and say, well, this is the reason why we have global war. You can look at this text. It'll tell you about global war and war among nations. That's not what he's talking about. I'm not saying it's not the source of it, but I am telling you, he's talking about conflicts among believers, conflicts among believers. And the reason why they were having conflict among themselves was because they had adopted the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of God. They had adopted the sensual, earthly, demonic wisdom that says, it's all about me and what I want and what I want to get. And if you're in my way, then you're in trouble. All that stuff comes right into the church, right into the church. And there's no greater way to destroy the effectiveness of the church than to bring worldly wisdom into the church. And to be clear, I'm not talking about dress codes and haircuts and movies. When I talk about worldliness, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what's inside the heart, what's in the mind, the thinking process. Listen, you can have all that external stuff in order and be demonic on your heart. You can have all of that. When I was raised, I attended a private Christian school for a number of years because way back then, my dad put us in a Christian school to get us out of the public school system. And I was amazed to find out, even as a young person, there was very little difference between the kids I was friends with in the Christian school than the people in the public school. The only difference was the ones in the Christian school had to have a haircut a certain way, had to dress a certain way, and the girls had a two-inch knee rule for their dresses. But all the same thinking was there. All that boys did. Was all there. The heart is the problem. And I'm talking more about how the world gets into the thinking of the church, specifically the believers in the church. It gets into your logic, your reasoning, your moral fabric, your philosophy, your wisdom. We're seeing it attacked today, aren't we? I mean, there's a constant attack on the sufficiency of the Bible. We got all these other things out there, but the Bible is just not quite enough. And now there's the context, the ongoing attack on the reliability of the Bible. I mean, you hear Andy Stanley, prominent pastor, 
of a, quote, church, which really is not a church. And what does he say? He said, we've got to get away from saying the Bible says. We can't say that anymore. What we've got to say is the resurrection. Look at the resurrection. Frankly, folks, you cannot know anything about the resurrection unless you look at the text. All right? And he'll say, well, we can go back to historical resources and we can affirm what they say about the resurrection. Well, they're not inspired. This is inspired. And if you believe you saying the Bible says is somehow going to hinder someone from entering into the kingdom, you have a deficient understanding of what salvation is and what regeneration is and what God does in salvation. And yet what he's telling us is the New Testament documents are not reliable. You have to go back to the resurrection. Well, you don't know anything about the resurrection unless you trust the documents. You don't know who this person is who resurrected unless you trust the documents. It's sad to say, but we are being sucked up into this stuff in massive amounts. And then there's the whole, uh, whole idea of many, many churches willing to affirm immorality. We're told that we need to do that so that we can embrace the world and help the world to love us more as a church. So we need to be more affirming of your immoral, immoral lifestyle. And then what have we done over the last few years even more? We've redefined sin. One of the greatest hurdles we have today with some of the sins defined in the Bible is the redefinition of those sins. Like, for instance, the word abortion. Well, that don't sound too bad. Well, that's not what it is. It's murder. It's not stopping a birth. It's murder. Murder. And even in, even in the evangelical community, when you say that, people cringe. How can you say that? Alcoholism with the ism is a disease. The Bible calls it a sin. It's not a disease to get medicated for. It's a sin to be repented of. And now we've got the whole sexual issues where people are told that this is something you're born with and you need to accept me in this lifestyle as a church and as a clergy. You need to accept me in this. And the Bible says no. No. And it's not that we're trying to be hateful or unloving. We're trying to genuinely love you and tell you the truth because one day your heart's going to stop beating and you're going to meet the God that you have decided on your own is not the God of the Bible. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and following tells us where our, where our battle is. And it's not with the flesh. It's not with the external physical things around us. It's not even with the physical sinners around us who rebel against God. It is with the thoughts. The thoughts. The battle is the mind. Second Corinthians 10, 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. We're not looking for our battles to be on the fleshly level, physical level. Rather, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. These are very secure devices that have been set up over long periods of time and are well defended. And what is he, talk, what is he talking about? He's talking about arguments, philosophy, thinking, what the universities and the colleges put out, what the young people are being taught daily in our culture. These strongholds, 
He says, but the way we pull these things down is by casting down arguments. That's the word logizomos. It means logic, reasoning. And you cast down everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Then he says, in bringing every thought into captivity. You have the word arguments, knowledge, and thoughts. The battle resides in the mind and the thinking. The schools and the universities learned this years ago, that the way you capture a culture and the way you transform a people is not externally, but internally in the classroom. You go back and read a little bit of the literature about Hitler's children. You'll find out what his plan was. He knew that the way he would govern the world was through the children's minds. That's why I encourage you, if you haven't already, that you need to seriously consider getting your children out of the public school system. And frankly, you need to be careful even with a Christian system. You need to check it out. Ken Ham has pointed out on a number of occasions how some of the Christian school systems don't even affirm some of the basics of the Bible. And they will undermine the Genesis account for the sake of being accepted in the secular culture. So just because it says Christian does not mean it affirms everything in this book. Well, I have a lot more to say. Let me just finish up with this. I'm not going to finish this today anyway. So, My three points for this text, which I'll never get to today, are the source of worldliness, the shock of worldliness, and the seriousness of worldliness. But I just want to quickly just end with this last few thoughts on the source of worldliness. And it's in verse 1. This is chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? This is a very abrupt beginning in a text because there's really no verb there. And uh, in the original text, all it says is this. Where wars, where fights in you? That's one of the reasons why in your New Testament you'll read words in the italics. Because what the translators have done, they have put these words in here to help it read smoother or else you're going to read some choppy text. And some text, especially the book of Hebrews, is a tough one. And whenever you read this, what's happening in James's mind, he's literally saying almost in shock, you know what the wisdom of the world is, you know what the wisdom of God is, so why the conflict? Why the battles? Why are you fighting among yourselves? You say, Christians fight among themselves? <laughs> how long have you been a Christian as a pastor I've seen it firsthand on a number of occasions in fact uh, I've seen some pretty nasty situations in churches that you would wonder I haven't even seen those kind of conflicts in some of the world conflicts can happen even among believers because listen Number one, there can be some unbelievers in the context, but also because even in believers, we all have sinful passions and sinful desires that if we don't control and that we don't have under the, the governance of the Holy Spirit, we can find ourselves being led away by the affections that are not godly, right? This turbulence and conflict that James is talking about apparently was something that was being affected by their affection for the world and their desire to have the wisdom of the world in their lives and the, the willingness to adopt what they would say and how to act and how to react. So he says, where do these wars and conflicts come from among you? It's diagnostic. 
He's asking them a question, so they'll look inside, and then he begins to answer the question, basically saying it comes from within you. He goes on and uses the word pleasures, which is the word that we get our English word hedonism from. Hedonistic. It basically means a lover of pleasure. And what he's telling us is that what's governing you here is not God's wisdom, but the wisdom to be pleased and have pleasure in your life. Whatever removes all the problems in your life and makes everything great on your end. It's all self-centered. It's all self-centered and not godly at all. He uses the word palamos for the word wars, which does mean generally war, but it has to do also with strife, acting hostile to one another. The word fights, make is the Greek word. It basically means the battles, the small battles among the big wars, right? He uses both of those words. The word make can be translated conflict. It refers to the violent personal relationships that can occur whenever even believers fight among themselves. As I told you, if you think that that's not a problem, all you need to do is remind yourself of 1 Corinthians and you'll find out that there was a church full of strife and division. I mean, they were suing one another, right? Paul had to correct them. In fact, the entire book of 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter. He's correcting all of their abuses. They were abusing one another. They were abusing the leadership. They were abusing each other in the courtroom. They were abusing the spiritual gifts. They weren't acting biblically in love. It was all about what they could get. He calls them in chapter 3, carnal. He says, you're acting like a lost man is what you're doing here. I couldn't even speak to you, he says, as a spiritual person because you're acting like a lost person. And he addresses that over and over in that text. And, and then here in James, he says, where do these wars and fights come from among you? The translation of that could be in you. It's the Greek preposition en, which could be literally inside of you. He could be talking about the inner cause of it, which later on he will address by the pleasures that are inside of you. Or he could be talking about the inner context of what happens within the church. The church as a whole has a desire to satisfy its affections and pleasure. And therefore, it has conflict because one is pitted against the other. One wants one thing and one wants another. This is opposite of what Jesus called on his disciples to do and to be. In John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. You love one another as I've loved you. And all men will know that you are my disciples because you have loved one for another. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he talks about that I pray to the Father that they would be one even as I and the Father are one. He didn't talk about essence. He was talking about the unity between the Father and the Son. And even Paul the Apostle even said on 2 Corinthians, the second letter he wrote to that, that divisive church, he was worried that whenever he showed up, there were going to be more strife and division and jealousies among them because they were governed so much by their fleshly minds instead of the Holy Spirit. Even Paul told Titus in chapter 3, verse 1, that we need to be reminded to subject ourselves to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all consideration for all men. For we also once for foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved with various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. That's where we used to be. We're not to be there anymore. I read an article this past week that said annually there are 19,000 
19,000 what they called scarring events and major church hurts. 19,000. I don't know how they got that information, who they talked to, but they said there's 19,000 annually in America alone where people are hurt dramatically by a church or scarred by a church. Now, frankly, folks, that should not be the case. That should not be the case. Now, I would add a footnote to that. There are times whenever you have to divide, no doubt. There are times whenever doctrine becomes an issue, and I'm talking about the essential things of God's word regarding the gospel, where there's compromise on the basics of the fundamentals of the gospel, and you may have to divide from a group of people who are willing to tolerate false doctrine. That, that can happen. There's also the times even in churches where they've tolerated false teachers and false teaching. There's times where churches have had to divide over the fact that they covered up a sinful situation that was going on for a long period of time. There's also times whenever you may need to divide yourself and leave a church because its worship becomes more suited to the world's taste. There could be problems in a church because there's no financial accountability. There's a long list of things that would qualify for needs to divide yourself and to leave a situation even to dispute a situation in a godly and honorable way. But sadly, that's not usually the case. That's not usually the most, most of the reasons why people divide and have disputes and arguments in churches. Most of them are over very trivial, very ridiculous matters. And churches have divided over some of the strangest things. I read an article also that talked about the top 25 reasons why churches have divided. And I'm not going to read to you all of them, but just a couple of them give you the idea. These are true statements given by people who were involved in the actual division and dispute and argument and battles in the church. One church divided and had a dispute over the appropriate length of the pastor's beard. I don't have a problem with that. Mine stops right here. And then also another one had a dispute over a children's playground as to whether to make it a playground or a cemetery. Another had a dispute over whether or not to install in a restroom for women stall dividers. Another church had an argument and a vote to decide whether the clock should be in the worship center or should it be removed. I guess that depends on your pastor who, and how long he preaches, right? And then also another church had a fight over the picture of Jesus, which one to put in the foyer. As this author said, I just want to know who took the picture. Right. Another division occurred in a church because they were concerned about whether or not the staff should have been clean shaven. There was another division and dispute in a church over a worship leader because he did not wear shoes whenever he led the church in worship. Another church literally divided over a financial statement because it was 10 cents off. The argument continued for some time until finally someone gave a dime to settle it. Another church divided and had a dispute over whether or not to use grape juice or cran grape in the Lord's Supper. There was another one, I thought this was interesting, that fought over and eventually some members left over this because they were divided over the type of coffee in the church. Some wanted Folgers and others wanted Starbucks because it was stronger but because they ended up with the latter, some left. I would say, really? There's only one legitimate reason I could come up with in this whole list that I think I would support 
as far as a division. And one church divided over whether or not they should have deviled eggs in the church. I could probably get behind that one. Now that's silly and it's just a strange thing, but it's sad but true. These things happen. And the reason why they happen is because people are living their lives full of worldly wisdom and godless philosophy and not filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason why they seek the pleasures they do and the battles and the conflicts ensue. We need to make sure that we don't set ourselves in a position to where we're becoming friends of the world and affectionate for the philosophy and the thinking and the reasoning of the world. We should be totally and wholly different. Amen? Let's pray together as we close. Our Father, thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you, Lord, just for the privilege to gather together in this place and to worship this afternoon. What a blessing it has been to worship through song, to hear these beautiful children sing praises to your name, to hear your word and be reminded, Lord, of how you desire your church to be set apart from the world. We live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We are to be wholly and completely devoted to Christ as his bride. And Lord, I pray that that would be the case in all of our lives, that we would carefully search out our hearts and our minds and make sure that we're not being influenced by the ideologies and the reasonings of 